Good morning, everyone. It is uh, really good to see all of you. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Cross Points. And we have been in a series called Different. And we've been sort of walking through the book of 1 Peter. And every week we're looking at one particular thing that makes disciples of Jesus different in this world. Uh, The first thing that Peter says to his readers is that they are elect exiles or strangers or pilgrims or whatever. It's translated a number of different ways. But the bottom line is that if you know Jesus and you are following Jesus, your life will be different than the people around you. There's really, I think that's the simplest way to understand it. And so um, that's what we're talking about. And the fact is that when you wake up to God and he shows himself to you and you experience this new birth, that's how that's how different this life is. It's it's described as a new birth. You were dead before and God has made you alive. And so it's not like uh, you're you, you go to Jesus and he makes your life better. No, you go to Jesus. And he makes you brand new. And you are completely different. You're a new kind of person. A different kind of person than you used to be. The problem for many of us, the problem for many Christians, is that we want to fit in. We want to be like everyone else. We don't always want to stand out because we want to be accepted. We don't like being rejected. We don't always like the criticism that comes from being different. We sometimes crave acceptance and praise from people who are different than us. And that's a problem for us. And it's, it's natural for many of us, just because of our personalities or whatever, because of our human nature, we want to be accepted and we want to be loved by everyone. And, and we long sometimes for the praise of other people. But that can become a major obstacle. In fact, for some of you in here today, I'm, I'm pretty confident that the one thing keeping you from experiencing the power of God in your life is your desire to fit in and your desire for the praise of other people. But you know what? <laughs> why, why would you really, why would you want normal? Why would you want to be normal? Because you know what normal is today? Normal is being like everybody else. Normal is being in debt. Normal is being busy. Normal is being stressed out. Normal is divorce. Normal is being afraid of the unknown. Normal is being obsessed with my appearance. Normal is is fighting depression. Normal is binge drinking. Normal is developing an addiction to cope with all the stress and anxiety in my life. Normal is complaining about your job all the time. Normal is keeping secrets from people because you don't want them to know who you really are and, you're, and you have shame from the things that you've done. And so you think it's better to not let people see the part of you. Normal is having teenage kids that want nothing to do with you. Normal is, is living your life and working hard in the hopes that the next generation will remember you for something and that maybe one day God will accept you because you're basically good and that, and that you're, maybe you did enough, maybe you'll get to heaven someday. That's normal. Who wants that? I don't want that. I don't want a normal life if that's what normal is. And that is what normal is in our, in our culture today. I want different. 
And you know what? Jesus said this one time, he said, there are two roads in this life. There's two paths that people are on. And you're on one of those two paths. And the, the first path is wide, and it's popular, and most people are on that path. And they think it leads somewhere good, but in the end, they're going to find out it doesn't lead anywhere good. It leads to destruction. But there's another path, and it's much more narrow, and only a few people find it, and that's the path that leads to life. Which path are you on? Which path are you on? So today we're going to look at uh, the next passage in First Peter. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, and we're going to talk about values. And so if you have your Bible, I'm just going to read. It's, it's kind of a long passage, but I'm just going to read it in one piece so you can get a, a sense for the flow and, and what the message of, of this passage this morning is. In First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, you can follow along with me. Uh, I'll be reading from the, from the ESV. Here we go. This is what uh, the Apostle Peter says. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass, The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of God. So the last couple of weeks, we looked at the first, pat, the first words, the introduction of this letter, and basically the Apostle Peter was talking about our identity. He starts by saying, this is who you are. This is what you have. You're born again. You have this permanent inheritance from God. You're a new creation. You have a faith that is resilient and that will be tested through trials. You have assurance in the promises of God. You have all those things. He's defining our identity. You're, you're different. You're elect exiles in this world. And because of that, now he says, because that's who you are and because of what you possess through Christ, here's how you should live. Here's how your life should be different. And there's some very specific things that Peter wants us to know should set us apart in this world. So, and there's actually four things in the text, four actions or uh, imperatives that he gives us. And that's going to be our focus this morning. And so 
The first one, it, it comes out right in verse 13. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the first thing we're told to do is to set your hope fully on future grace. Set your hope fully on future grace. Now, just like a couple weeks ago, we looked at the first few verses, Peter uses a modifier here. And because Pastor Phil did this, I thought it'd be fun to just do a pop quiz and ask you about the modifier in, the, in this word. Now, now, what does an adjective do again? Does it modify a noun or a verb? A noun. You guys got it now. Oh, I'm so glad. You, have, you got it. Okay, that's right. Now, does an adverb modify a noun or a verb? A verb. Most of you got that right. Um... Do you see the word fully in the text? He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. What does that word fully modify? Right. She used to be a teacher. That's not fair. Uh, It does. It doesn't modify the word grace. It modifies the word set, which is a verb. So fully is what, that's the action. That's modifying the action, okay? We are supposed to set our hope fully on the grace that's to be brought to us. Not partially, but that's the struggle. And Peter understands that. He understands that we sort of set our hope on God, and we sort of set our hope on other things. And what I want you to know is that partial hope, partial hope in the grace of God will not change your life. You have to set your hope fully on the grace that will come to you when Jesus is revealed. It, it is like, it, this is in all, we're, we got to be all in when it comes to this. All in. This is a, I, I, and, and the problem is that what we do is we set our hope on Jesus, but then we also set our hope on other things. We set our hope on the person who lies in bed to, lies next to us in bed at night. We set our hope on a mom or a dad. We set our hope on a child because, because you know, maybe you are the, the sovereign ruler over that child's world, and you, you are your child's savior. And, and, and as, a, as a young mom, you probably are. But sometimes we set our hope in that. We set our hope in our child's behavior and how they're going to turn out. We set our hope in finding a spouse. We can set our hope on having a child or having another child. We can set our hope... You can set your hope on your pastor, which is a big mistake. You can set your hope on a career. You can set your hope on financial security. You can set your hope partially on all those things, but that will always keep you from living the kind of life that is set apart for God, that stands out in this world. And none of those other things, none of those people or things can redeem you. And Peter is reminding us that the best is yet to come, and there's nothing better than what Jesus is going to bring. When the, when, when the heavens are rolled back and he appears and everyone finally acknowledges him as Lord of all. Many people for the first time, unfortunately. And so our minds should be focused on that. And our minds should be prepared for action. To be thinking about when Jesus is going to be revealed and what's going to happen. And all the, the realities that he's going to make known. So set your hope fully on future grace. And then Peter says in verse 15, As obedient children, do not be conformed 
to the passion of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. As it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so the second thing that we have to do is is be holy in every area of your life. Be holy in every area of your life. The word for holy in the original language is hagios, which means different. That's what the word means. The root of the word means different. Jews considered the temple to be hagios. That's what it was called. It was different. It was a different kind of building. They considered the Sabbath day to be holy, a different kind of day. You don't work that day. It was different. It was set apart. And disciples of Jesus are considered to be, they're called hagios, different. Why? Because we're because just like the temple, just like the Sabbath, in, in some sense, in one sense, we're ordinary, but we're set apart for God's use. And that makes us different. We're set up, that's why we're different. It's not because we're anything special. It's because we're set apart for God's use, which means that being holy is personal. It's a personal thing to God. It means we belong to God. We don't belong to this world anymore. We don't belong to the way we used to live. We belong to God. We're set apart for God's use. So our, the way that we live, our values should be different. So what is, what is holiness and what, what makes us different? I mean, we could talk about so many things this morning, but one of the things that Peter was focused on in this letter is the fact that when you begin to follow Jesus, here's what's going to change in your life. The world around you used to affirm you for the way you live. They used to accept you and to consider you to be like everybody else. But since you started following Jesus, you're going to start being misunderstood. And you're going to start being rejected by the people around you. And if your life doesn't look any different than the people living around you, you're probably not following Jesus. And if you are never questioned about your faith or criticized for your values, you might not be following Jesus. And if you are not living a different kind of life that costs you something, your kids probably won't see the value in following Jesus. Because it won't be real to them. It won't be worth the cost. In their eyes. So I wonder if your kids, if your kids notice anything different about you and your family or themselves. You know, I wonder if the the young people who are here this morning, the kids sitting in here, do you feel like you stand out for anything at your school, in your neighborhood? Do your friends know that you're different or that your family's different? Do they ever ask you, why do you do this? Why don't you do that? You know what I mean? And it's not about behavior. That's not ultimately what it's about. We'll talk about that in a second. But... Peter uses the word behavior. Your conduct should be different. There should be something visibly different about your life because of what Jesus has done. Visibly different. So for my, and I can only speak for my family. I can share some things with you about my family, and I'm not imposing this on your family. I'm not saying, you know, if you don't do it like we do it, you know, you have to be like us because that's not what it's about. It's not about us. But there are things that are different about our family that stand out. To the people around us. We don't watch 
the same movies and shows that everybody else watches. Our kids don't watch the same things on screens that many of their friends are watching. Why? Ultimately, it's because we understand that we're different. And we don't desire some of, to see some of those things. We don't desire, we don't want to see that. We just don't because it's not pleasing to God, to us. And it doesn't build us up in our faith. It doesn't make us want to be more like Jesus. Here's a big one for us. What we wear. We have four daughters and a son. And modesty is extremely important to us. Um, my daughters do not wear bikinis. All of their friends wear bikinis. Almost all of them wear bikinis. Do you know how hard it is for my wife to find a one-piece swimming suit that fits my daughter? It's extremely difficult. Do you know why? Because one-piece swimming suits are not popular. Those are on the narrow road. You know what I mean? They're, they're just hard. But you know what, Mike? You will not see any of my daughters in a bikini. You will not. Not as long as we're buying their clothes and they live under our roof. That's important to us because we know what young men are like. And we know what they're looking at. When my daughters, who are all beautiful in form and appearance, we know what they're looking at. I don't want them looking at that. No way. And my daughters don't either. And my daughters, thanks mostly to my wife and her value, they are conscious of what they wear. And I praise God for that. They get it. They're starting to get it. Um, What our kids have access to is very different than what their friends have access to. Our kids do not have phones. Um, Our oldest daughter has, has, you know, she has an iPod, iPod Touch, but they are, she doesn't have access to the internet. She has to go through us to get that, and and it's monitored. We know what they look at. We know what they see. They don't get to go, they don't get to just freely roam the internet. They just don't because we know what's out there. And our kids are set apart by God. And we don't want them to be like everyone else. We don't want them to see what everyone else sees. That's important to us. Who and when our daughters date is going to be different than their friends. Okay, our oldest daughter is 14. She's going to be a freshman in high school. She is not even interested in dating right now. She's not even interested in boys unless she's hiding that from us, but I don't think she is. And I praise God for that. And you know what? Even if she was, it wouldn't matter. She's not going to be dating for at least another couple years. And who she dates, you better believe that we are going to know that person. We are going to know them before she goes anywhere or spends any time alone with that young man. He will be seriously vetted because... Because God is holy. It's not because I'm afraid. It's not because I don't trust my daughter. It's because God is holy. And because he's called us to that. He's called us to a different standard, a different way of life. What we say and don't say, the language we use around our home, the language that we use in private most of the time, is different. Right? The, the place that the local church has in our life is different than the vast majority of people in this world. The local church will always have a central place in our family's life, and our rhythm of life. And it will always be a priority to us because it's a priority to Jesus. And it's a priority to God. And Jesus Christ died to redeem his church. And so the gathering of the saints 
will always be a priority to us. Always. And it'll be something that our family will always embrace. Um, this is one more I'll add. And this one, you know, you may, uh, there's such a wide range of views on this, but what our family eats and drinks, and, and mostly how we eat and drink, is important to us. And I'll just admit, I love beer. I gr- I've been born and raised in Milwaukee. I love beer. I drink beer. I drink beer in my home. I even, we even have beer in my fridge. But you know what? My kids have never seen me. They've never seen me drunk, and they never will see me drunk, ever. You know why? Because I don't drink to excess. I don't. God has given me grace at this point in my life to know when to stop. And he's also given me a wife to know when to stop. And that's God's grace too. And so my kids will never see me drink too much. And so you may decide, hey, I don't even want beer in my house, and that's fine. That's totally fine. I respect that. But it's important to us that we are not, we don't drink like other people. We don't, we just don't do, that's not important to us because of God's holiness. And so please understand me. I I don't share that stuff with you because this isn't about do's and don'ts. That's not what this is about. This, following Jesus, it's about new life. It's about spiritual transformation. But listen to this. Transformation will always change your values, and that means that your life will be visibly different than most of the people around you. That's what it means. And so your values should be different. And, and now we're going to turn to the, the third and probably the most important practice that should make us stand out as believers in Jesus more than anything else. <clears throat> in verse 22, Peter says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again. So, of your new birth, and this is what Peter said, the way that you love other followers of Jesus is the evidence of your new birth. He points back to that. There's a, there's a direct correlation. If you, have been, if you are a new creation because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, your love for God's people will endure. That's what he's saying. It will be sincere. He uses two words. It'll be sincere and it will be deep. It will be earnest and it will be pure. It's going to be holy. It's a different kind of love. It doesn't just last until that person offends you. It's a sincere kind of love. It doesn't to- this love doesn't tolerate sin. When you see sin in a brother or sister, you love them so much that you will go to them and you will point it out in love gently. And you'll risk the friendship. You'll risk that conf- confrontation because you love them. And you know, it, it might be uncomfortable, it might be hard, it might be difficult, but you do it anyway because it, because it matters to you. Because you believe that they belong to God and you belong to God and you're brothers and you, gotta, you just do it because you love them. It's sincere, that's what it means. It's also deep though, and that word deep can mean rigorous or strenuous. It just keeps going and going and going. Even when you don't feel like loving, you do it. It's almost like running. And I don't know this from experience because I hate running. I hate distance running. But I've talked to runners and I ask them, how do you do it? How do you run for miles and miles and miles? And they seem to enjoy it. 
and, they're, and, it's, and it's really all in their heads. It's all in their minds. And they always say that. They all say that. It's all mental. Okay, your body can do things that you don't, your body has another level that you've never tapped into. So when you're running and you're training and your mind says it's time to stop, you just push through that. You push through that and then guess what? You, you open up another valve that you didn't even know was there. And then when you hit the finish line, it's, it's exhilarating, it's rewarding. And that's what this love is like. You know, you love, you love someone and you give and you sacrifice and you listen to them and you're there for them. And you, you sacrifice, you carry their burden. That's what love is, right? But there always comes a time in, as, a, as a Christian where you feel like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I can't keep doing this. I've given all I can give. And you know what? You, <laughs> that's your mind. And you've just got to push through. And when you feel like, when your mind says, no, you've given enough, love keeps going. This kind of love keeps going. It just keeps going. That's the kind of love that we're supposed to have for one another. It's a different kind of love than the world has. Because it's a divine love. It's a spiritual love. And when the world sees it, they realize they're in the presence of something different. You know, when we have our block party on Tuesday, that's what I want people to see. I, we, we want people to just get a glimpse of it, to just get a glimpse of that love. That, that's life-changing. That's why we do these things. We want people out, on the outside, we want people on the outside to see genuine love in a gospel community. That's why we do block parties. That's why we do events like this. Is because we want to expose people to the love of Christ. And, and by, the way, by how we love each other, that's what it's all about. It in, love endures all things. The Bible gives tons of examples of this. In 2 Samuel, at the end of David's life, at the end of the book of 2 Samuel, David is on his deathbed. And Samuel's just sort of, re, uh, he go, he's thinking back David's life. And he starts talking about some of David's most loyal and faithful men. He calls them David's mighty men. And he shares some stories that he remembers about these men. The first one, I forget, and I'm not going to share their names. I don't remember what they are. and I, <clears throat> I probably could barely uh, pronounce them. But he remembers this one of David's mighty men, a time when he killed 800 Philistines with his spear. And the Spirit of God came on him, and he never gave up. And, he, and, and the Philistines were the enemies of God. And he, and he killed in one day 800 Philistines. The next one, when all of the, when the rest of the troops fell back, he stood his ground, and with a sword, he fought all day. And it says, the text says that the sword was frozen to his hand at the end of the day, and he stood victorious against all the Philistines. And the last one, something similar happened. His whole platoon fell back, they retreated, and he stood his ground, and God gave him victory over the Philistines. But he saved the best story for last. He remembered a time when David was stuck in the cave of Adullam and he was hiding from Saul. And David had already been anointed king and Saul knew it. And so Saul wanted to kill David and the Philistines wanted to kill David because they were afraid that if David took power that he would bring Israel back to prominence. And so in the valley, um, the cave was up in the mountains and in the valley there was a Philistine 
a, group of Phil- a big group of Philistine soldiers, probably over 100, waiting for David to emerge. And then in David's hometown of Bethlehem, there was another band of Philistine soldiers blocking the way to make sure David couldn't get back there. And David is stuck in this cave. And he says to himself, I'm so thirsty. If only I could get a drink from the well at the gates of Bethlehem. And he, didn't, he wasn't expecting anyone to get him a drink. He didn't command his soldiers to get him a drink or anything like that. But listen to what happened. Those mighty men, they must have heard David say this. They leave the cave. They break through the Philistine barrier. And they hike 13 miles to the well at the gates of Bethlehem. And somehow, they get a bucket of water. And they take it 13 miles back to the cave. And they give it to David. That is love that endures. That's the kind of love that Peter's talking about. It bears all things. It bears all things. They didn't do it because they were obligated to. They didn't do it because David commanded them to. They did it because they loved their king. And they were loyal to him. And they, they wanted to bless him. That's it. That's love. Our minds are prepared for action. You know what's different? You know what the opposite is? The opposite is is asking, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? That's the question that we are saddled with in our day-to-day lives. What's in it for me? Why should I love that person? Why should I sacrifice? Why should I give? What's in it for me? Love doesn't ask that question. Our minds are set fully on the grace that's coming in the future, and we're able to look beyond ourselves to Jesus and to the other people who, who need that love. So we're going to go to the last, we're going to go to this, uh, the last verse that we're going to look at, 2 verse 2. And this is what it says. Peter says, newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up unto salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, I don't know if you noticed the language here. And um, the sermon's about to get interesting because we're going to talk about a subject that will make everyone feel comfortable here, breastfeeding. That's what longing for the pure spiritual milk means. He's talking about a metaphor. He's talking about breastfeeding. Now, I, I don't, have you ever seen a newborn breastfeed? It's not a question. It's in the text. I didn't want to talk about it. I don't, like, I don't like watching that. I'm a guy. I'm uncomfortable with it. I don't know why. I know it's natural. But we have to understand why he uses this metaphor. Um, some of you moms, and I don't understand this, you act like the unforgivable sin in the New Testament is bottle feeding. <laughs> but that's not it. Okay. It's okay if you didn't breastfeed your kids. That's not what I'm trying to say. Um, This last week in Facebook, you know how Facebook, if some of you are on Facebook, most of you probably, Facebook knows you. And so they put these events on your news feed that they think you'll be interested in. You know what I'm talking about? And I saw this event and I was like, oh, it's in West Dallas by the farmer's market. What's that? It's called the Big Latch On. I'm thinking, what's that about? Maybe I'd be interested in going to that. I was naive. The big latch 
as a local event sponsored by the Breastfeeding Coalition. I don't know why we need a coalition for breastfeeding. Why do you need a coalition for that? But it's basically a bunch of women who get together and breastfeed and support each other. And anyone who supports breastfeeding is invited to attend. I have no interest in going to that event. What am I going to look at the whole time? Who am I going to make eye contact with? Um, (laughs) That would be just super awkward and uncomfortable. Their tagline is building community support one latch at a time. I'm not making this up. Anyway, um, listen, here's the point. This is the point of the metaphor, as uncomfortable as it sounds. And this is going to blow your mind. I got this from Jen Wilkin. I, did not make the, I didn't come up with this on my own. If we are children and we know how to feed on the Word of God, do you know what that means? Everyone who shares the Word of God with someone else, every evangelist is a midwife. And every Bible teacher is a lactation consultant. That's what he's saying. Pastor Scott is a lactation consultant. I can't stop thinking about that. And, and in Jesus' day, in Jesus' day, breastfeeding was way more natural. It just was. It was people were more comfortable with it. In fact, you might you probably didn't even know this. There's this time in Luke chapter 11. Jesus is teaching a crowd of people. He's talking about heaven and all these things. And he said, and, um, he said, as he said these things, this is Luke 11, 27 and 28. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore at which you nursed. So Jesus is talking about life and death. And this, all this woman can think to shout is, let's hear it for natural birth and breastfeeding. But Jesus said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Okay? That is what following Jesus is about. That's the narrow road. That's what it means to be different. The people who stand out like bright shining stars in this world are the people who hear the word of God and they keep it. They do it. They don't walk away the same. They obey God. No matter the cost. That's what holiness means. So as we close this morning, there's one more thing in the text I want us to see. And this really, I think, is the center of all of it. This is the reason we do it. This is the reason that our values matter. This is the reason that we live differently. This is the reason we do certain things and the reason we don't do other things, okay? And this is, in, this is um, I think, in verse 18. This is, what the, this is what the text says. And this is on the heels of Peter just said, this is what it means. This is, you should be holy because God is holy. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Okay, that is the reason. That is what changes us. That is what makes us clean. That's what makes us us acceptable to God. It's not because we're good. It's not because we're righteous. It's not because we stopped drinking or stopped swearing or because we started becoming more modest or because we cleaned our act up, the only reason that we can stay in the presence of God and that we can call ourselves children of God is because of the precious blood of Jesus. 
It's because of his sacrifice. It's because of the life he lived. It's because of his death. His life becomes our life. And our sin was placed on him. And on the cross, God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. And we have all this language about blood all over the Bible. And a lot of people find that strange. Like, why is there all this, why do Christians talk about blood so much? What's, all, what's about all the, you know, there's a hymn that talks about, oh, precious is the flow, the flow of blood. That's what the song is saying. It's precious to us. The flow of Jesus' blood out of his body. In fact, he bled so much that when a, a Roman soldier pierced his side hours after he had hung on the cross, bleeding out, a mix of blood and water came out because there wasn't much blood left in his body. It had all been spilled. And while blood makes most people cringe and weak in the knees, for the Christian, the blood of Jesus is the most precious thing that we have because it gives us peace with God and it gives us a new life and it gives us a hope for the future, a living hope, and it gives us an inheritance that will never spoil or fade. And it's kept in heaven for us. And it gives us a new, a new kind of life with different values. It makes our life different. It makes us stand out. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean we can look at anyone else and say that we're better, my friends. Okay, just because you don't watch that movie or because you don't get drunk or because... You know, you don't listen to that music or whatever. It doesn't make you any better than anybody. It just means that you're forgiven by the blood of Jesus and that his blood is precious to you. And that's what our minds have to always go back to, is the precious blood of Jesus. The good news that his blood was spilled instead of yours. And it cost him something. It cost Jesus everything to make you different. And that's why his blood was spilled so that your life would be different. So that, and, and when people see what's different about you, maybe, and we'll talk about this later in Peter's letter, maybe some people will ask you, hey, why, why are you different? Where does your hope come from? And then you can share with them about the precious blood of Jesus. And their lives will change too. So do you believe that God is good? Do you believe God is good today? Then be different in the way you live your life. Stand out for your values. Stand out for the way you love people. Be different in the way you crave God's word. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the precious blood of Jesus because there is nothing, absolutely nothing we could ever do to make ourselves right with you. There's nothing we could do to pay you back. There's nothing we can do to cover our sin. It is pointless to even try to hide our sin because the day will come when everything will come to light. The things we have whispered in the secret places will be shouted from the rooftops. And those who are living with shame will be exposed. But Jesus, you died to remove our shame. You died to remove our guilt. You died to give us confidence, to approach the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that our sins have already been paid for. We don't have to cover them, Jesus, because you covered them. We can confess our sin. We can come into the light. We can be made clean. So God, make us pure today.
Give us a desire for your word. Give us a, give us a love that is otherworldly for one another and for you because of the love you've given us. Make us new. Make us clean. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.